Hello and welcome to episode 119 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alegi, and my guest today is Gene Allman, professor of African and African-American studies and director of the Center for the Humanities at Washington University in St. Louis. Her research focuses on West African history. She's the author and co-author of numerous books, including The Quills of the Porcupine, Asante Nationalism in an Emergent Ghana, and with Victoria Tashian of I Will Not Eat Stone, A Women's History of Colonial Asante, and with John Parker of Tongnab, The History of a West African God. She has edited several collections, including Fashioning Africa, Power and the Politics of Dress, and Women in African Colonial Histories. Allman co-edited the Journal of Women's History for six years and is series co-editor of New African Histories at Ohio University Press. She is currently the president of the African Studies Association in the USA and is here on campus at Michigan State University to give the ASA presidential lecture at the African Studies Center. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. So when I asked my African history undergraduate students at the beginning of a course, which nation or which people they know in Africa, they will inevitably say either Asante or Zulu. Well, some say Maasai, maybe. Mm -hmm. How did you come to work on Ghana and especially initially focus on Asante history and culture? Well, it was uh, uh, overdetermined, I think. I uh, went to Northwestern University as an undergraduate. I didn't go there to study African history. I didn't know much about African history at all. But I showed up there and um, very quickly learned that it was one of the oldest African studies programs in the country. So my very first year, my freshman year, I took a course with Professor Ivor Wilkes. And I was astounded. And this was a course on Asante history. And, you know, I went to St. Louis Public Schools. I thought I was a well-educated person. I was like, how do I not know this? So I just I sort of got bitten by that bug and um, took more classes, but always with a Ghanaian focus. Well, many of them were, not all of them, and then ended up spending most of my junior year um, in Ghana, in, in Kumasi. So that's how it started. Well, Ira Wilkes, uh, one of the most uh, famous practitioners of uh, Ghanaian history. And looking at your research writings over the past two decades or so, and I was rereading several of your the books recently, it's amazing how they come to represent, in a lot of ways, the larger changes that have taken place in the fields of not just Ghanaian history, but West African and even African history more broadly. Uh, you went from Asante nationalism in the 50s, uh, which tended to be, I think, a, a concern of, say, uh, an older generation, perhaps, of kind of political history uh, in African historiography to, you know, the focus on women in Asante history and looking at things like marriage and mothering. And then a wonderful edited volume on women in colonial histories, which uh, really everyone should read from Indiana University Press. And I noticed, though, that despite all this terrific work, you, you at times express some uh, frustration, if you will. Um, you say in that introduction to that 2002 edited volume that the, the impact of women's history and gender studies on mainstream colonial historiography remains alarmingly minimal. Now, this was some time ago, but I wonder, 
has your view changed? And uh, how is the field different today? What has you excited or maybe concerned? It hasn't changed as much as I thought it would change. I mean, I find myself, um, you know, picking up new books and going straight to bibliographies or to introductions. And, you know, there are books that are still published on, you know, Asante colonial history that where gender's not dealt with at all, where somebody like Gracia Clark's work has not had an impact. The work that Victoria Tastian and I did just hasn't. So there's a way in which it's remained marginal, um, you know, 30 years into the game. So anyway, I'm intrigued by that. And I don't know um, where that comes from. But it's, it's, I think over these years, I've, I've been constantly amazed by how entrenched certain questions are and how marginal other questions remain. So what are the ones that are, you think, so deeply entrenched? Um, questions about the state, questions about power and economy. And unless you're a feminist historian, a women's historian, a gender historian, it's assumed that you don't need to actually talk about those things, that those things are special and they've remained special and therefore, I think, marginal uh, to the field. I mean, I hope those things are changing, um, but we'll see. Slowly. That's interesting. How much do you think it has to do with method? In the sense that scholars who are concerned with those topics you just mentioned, things like the state and so on, you know, tend to live in archives and look at official sources uh, almost exclusively mm. or heavily, whereas your work is very interdisciplinary. I mean, you're a wonderful oral historian, and in your book with John Parker, you looked at shrines and, um, you know, you, you really are deeply embedded in kind of, you know, an expansive view of what the sources for African history should be. Uh, or is it something else? Is it a, more of a bias towards uh, certain voices, perhaps, or perspectives? I think it's a bias. I don't think it's methodology, actually. I'm not positive about that, but I, I don't think, because um, some of the works that I'm thinking of, and I'm, which will re- remain unnamed, I think, um, People are using oral history methodology just because you do oral history. It's about the kinds of questions you ask and and um, who you're speaking to. So in that sense, I guess it's it's methodology, but it's not oral history. Just doesn't automatically come uh, with some kind of openness to considering questions, for example, about gender or sexuality or yeah, other things that tend to stay off the radar. So no, that's a very good point. And do you see differences in terms of? how perhaps scholars based in Africa or ones based in the global north approach these uh, questions? Or is it a, a global sort of uh, bias or preconception? I'm going to say that it's global. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it's global. I'm thinking about um, dissertations that I've reviewed at, for the University of Ghana, and I can see the, you know, the, I can see the same sorts of things being reproduced. So I think it's it's global, yeah. Now, unlike a lot of scholars in the humanities and social science disciplines, you've written a lot with other scholars. Your co-authorship is, is quite unusual, especially for historians. Uh, our tendency is to research alone in dusty archives, uh, write sole-authored books. Uh, this is a practice that's often encouraged by Mm. your supervisor initially as a doctoral student, then by departments, if and when you're hired, um, by tenure and promotion 
committees, by grantors, etc. So why have you bucked the trend, so to speak? And, and can you tell our listeners what has motivated you to work cooperatively? And, and do you have any advice for those who might be interested in pursuing this kind of collaborations? Yeah, that, those are a lot of questions. Let me start at the end, which is that I, I think that if you look at the recent data that's being collected by the MLA and the AHA about the kind of skill sets that PhD students in the humanities need to work outside of academia, which roughly two-thirds of people who get a PhD uh, in the humanities or humanistic social sciences end up not in tenure-track jobs. The kind of skills that make them appealing to those outside are things like project management, collaborative work. And so um, I didn't know, I didn't think about that, you know, when I decided years ago that I liked collaboration. But I do think that it's something that should be en- encouraged more in the training of graduate students. I mean, I think we even need to rethink the, the solo dissertation, frankly, um, as other disciplines have, have done. But that's an aside. So for me, it's just I've always enjoyed the ways in which my ideas change in conversation with other people. And it just was a natural outgrowth of of that. The book, I Will Not Eat Stone, I was sitting down to to put that together, you know, that sort of day where you sit down with all your stuff. And I realized I'm going to need, you know, like I need a couple chapters on on marriage. I haven't looked at marriage close enough. I've mostly motherhood. And I knew Victoria Tashton was a grad student who was one of Ivor Wilkes's graduate students. She wrote her dissertation on marriage. Now, I could try and replicate. I could have, you know, mined her dissertation, which would be completely unethical, but people do it all the time. Or I could call her up on the phone and say, you know what? I'm trying to put this book together that looks at gender and colonial Asante. You've done all this work in some of the same areas I've worked. I was looking primarily at um, Coco and changes in generational relationships and mothering. What if we join forces? What would that look like? And is there a way we can do this that doesn't hinder you know, her career as a, somebody, this would be her tenure book, right? And we, and we worked it through. And the book is a much better book because um, we pushed each other. You know, in the edited volume that I did with Susan Geiger and Nakanike Musisi um, was a, a fabulous undertaking, the three of us kind of hammering things out that just wouldn't have gotten to the same place. And so by the time the Tongna book, I mean, that was literally a, a, accidental, where John Parker and I were both in Ghana at the same time, and we decided to travel up to, um, to Bolga Tonga, and we literally were just sort of like tourists. Um, and we visited Tongnab. This is up in the north. Yeah, almost to Burkina Faso, not quite. And we just had this extraordinary kind of experience, which I describe in the introduction. And then we spent like two days sort of thinking, well, what if we ask questions about this that were historical questions? So Meyer Fortes is there, right, in the 30s. Mm-hmm. And it appears as if he, you know, he describes this totally sort of static, untouched, sort of pristine, the Talensian they're this and the Talensian they're that. But if you actually step back and look at what was going on at that time with labor migration and people moving in and all this stuff was going on, which is not in his, in his books, it's in like his archive. So we started to ask historical questions and what would Ghanaian history or that part of West Africa's history look like if we weren't sitting in Kumasi or in Accra writing that history, but we're sitting in Tongo. And that's sort of how it unfolded. So the, 
with that one, the quest, the whole thing unfolded sort of collaboratively. And then it was like, let's write a book about this. And we did. So from an intellectual standpoint, that makes complete sense. Mm. But it's difficult to work with someone else in practice. Are there any tips that you have for, again, <laughs> those who are so brave and bold and enterprising uh, that they want to do this kind of thing? Well, I'll say that it's more work than writing by yourself. In terms of just the labor of it, I think it's absolutely more work. Um, but I also think you end up in very different places. When John and I first started writing, we divided it up so somebody was the lead writer, would write the first draft of a chapter, and somebody would do the revisions. But this was before track changes. <laughs> and, and, and before MS the cloud. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. So we would email these things back and forth. And so John's prose is different than my prose. I like the short sentence, and he likes the long sentence and the, and the bigger words. So we would send these chapters back and forth, but there were no track changes. So I would just sort of, I don't like this. This sentence should be shorter. So I just changed stuff. And then he would do the same back. So there were these sort of subterranean battles that sort of went on, but, you know, in, in good humor. In the end, I, you know, I was, I loved that, that book. I loved the collaborative process of it. And I, I, I liked what we did with it, with that material. So it's sort of one of my favorite projects. Was it difficult to have to compromise on certain questions, perhaps of interpretation, or uh, you suggested, you know, sort of stylistic uh, issues and so on? And if, if, if you had certain challenges, how did you overcome them? Was it the trust and respect that you had for your colleague? Was it... Uh... I think trust and respect. Um, but I mean, we came to the big argument together, collaboratively. So I, we didn't have differences of opinion um, at all, or, or we would have written those in. The main difference was just stylistic, and maybe that's also a product of he's in the British Academy and I'm in the American Academy, I don't know. But then we both did sort of offshoot pieces, you know, connected, and so there were avenues that he was interested in that he followed up, and there were ones that I did, and, and yeah. And that's an important point, in fact, the offshoots to a collaborative project uh, when, you know, your doctoral supervisor or your department chair or others, you know, raise questions about, you know, is this the proper way to do it for a historian? You say, well, you know, there's this collaboration we're doing on a book, but I also have one or two standalone pieces that I'm spinning off right. that deal with certain things that I didn't tackle or we didn't tackle in the major projects. So very important point there. A collaboration, you know, can spawn multiple outlets and outputs. Right, but I still don't, I, I don't believe we should fetishize the single authored, oh, that, that the project's okay because I have these spinoffs. Um, if you look at what counts, for example, as a as a, a scientific, like a dissertation in the sciences, the same chapter can appear in eight different graduate students' dissertations because they were in the same lab and they wrote the same thing. The only thing that's different is the introduction to the collection of things that they put together. So, I mean, it's, it's humanists who have in some ways fetishized the single author thing, although we all know that we make our best arguments in dialogue with other people. This is just taking it to a slightly different degree. Yeah, and with the crisis, so-called crisis in the humanities, you know, the, the idea that you can only or should only work alone is, is even more problematic. Uh, I mean, I look at a lot of my colleagues in the College of Social Science who do applied work, and a 
lot of their work is collaborated with six, seven, eight authors. That's right. And, you know, when the time comes and they have to report to the higher-ups, they say, oh, I wrote 17 articles, mm -hmm. uh, of which 16 are multi-authored and maybe one is single-authored. And you look at the historian next to her, and the historian has two articles in the same time but written by herself. And then that gives an excuse to the higher-ups and outsiders and so on to say, oh, you see how unproductive. Uh, historians right. and other humanists and so-called right. soft social scientists are. So it's it's a it's in a way we're giving up a weapon in this ongoing struggle uh, for significance, perhaps. Or any any thoughts on that? Maybe before we turn to another issue. Well, yeah, I I think you're right. What we've also seen um, as the job market has become more precarious for for graduate students in the humanities and humanistic social sciences, and I don't know if that's the case at Michigan State, but it certainly is in, on most campuses, that there's a, a lot of depression among graduate students in the humanities. If you think about the isolation of work, particularly the all the years that you do the research and then write the dissertation, and it's not clear what kind of job you're going to end up with um, when it's all said and done. You know, we need to rethink I think the ways in which we do this kind of graduate training that's more humane, more collaborative, that can result in a range of, of career outcomes. Um, there was just today in Inside Higher Education, uh, there was an, an article about the high job satisfaction of people with PhDs in the humanities who don't end up in tenure track jobs and said they would do it all over again. So. Anyway, the data is coming in. Um, we're just a little bit slow in changing up the model. And of course, I think that it has in part to do with a tenure system that fetishizes the single authored monograph as the bar that one has to leap over. Um, so who's going to have the first grad student who doesn't write that single authored um, dissertation who therefore doesn't have and then doesn't get tenure. So it's it's like a it's a vicious cycle, but it's a cycle I think that um, that we need to get out of. And I think at a lot of institutions, people are trying to imagine new ways of doing these things. Well, speaking of single authored monographs, since 2004, you've been co-editor of the prestigious New African Histories book series at Ohio University Press with Alan Isaacman and more recently also with Derek Peterson both of whom have been guests on this podcast before. Oh, good. It's, a, again, a hugely influential series now, what, probably about 40 titles or so, I've lost count, and an extraordinary diversity of topics, of regions covered. But for social historians like me, you know, it's great that it focuses on the lived experiences of Africans, whether it's in their households or communities, workplaces, sports teams, etc. How is your work as a series editor uh, changed you as a scholar? Maybe you can build on some of the comments you just made about collaboration and so on. But also, what do you see are the main challenges facing Africana publishers today? Okay. Well, I will say that before the New African History series, then I also worked with Alan on the Heinemann Social History of Africa series. So I've been editing since I was um, editing a book series since I was a pretty new associate professor. And I have to say that it's one of my favorite things to do. I love reading manuscripts, new manuscripts in all different fields, work that I wouldn't know about otherwise. Um, and I like the process. Again, it's collaboration, right? Working particularly with first-time authors um, to get them to take this dissertation that was pretty much written for their advisor 
and to open it up theoretically, methodologically to a much larger audience, maybe even beyond African studies, um, that's an amazing process. Um, and then to see those books finally in print and being taught um, is, I mean, it's just, it's a real privilege. So I, I love it. And it's been a, an important part of my career. It's, it, it takes a lot of time, uh, but I, w- I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't give it up for anything. I think the, the series, the two that I have worked on, um, we have made you know, serious efforts to, to find co-publishing arrangements so that the um, books that are, even though they're published in the US, that, they, that there's an African publisher so that the books are accessible in, for example, in the in the country <laughs> that um, the, the book may focus on. And in some countries that's been fairly easy and straightforward. In other places it's not been easy and straightforward. Where has it succeeded? Uh, we have very good um, collaborative arrangements with South Africa. Uh, we've been fairly successful in Tanzania and in Kenya. But these are just... Um, it begs a much bigger question, which is um, how knowledge circulates globally. So you have this all this scholarship upon which people based in the U.S. you know make their careers, and much of it, if it's in monograph form, never reaches the scholars in the country concerned, much less the people upon whom that scholarship uh, focused, and that's a massive problem. Um, it goes the other way too where the scholarship being produced by our colleagues, for example, I'll just say Cameroon, you know, how does it circulate to the global north? And so what we've been able to do is just, a, a, it's a Band-Aid. Um, so recently, the, the African Studies Association has taken this up as a, as a quite serious problem. And Walter Bagoya came to us and said, came to the ASA and said, can't we do something here? Uh, to help come up with publication arrangements so that, for example, a PDF, for example, of a book that Ohio University Press does, it would be arranged that a a publisher in an African country could get that PDF and publish a version, get it for free or at very little um, cost, and be able to produce a version for, let's say, a Kenyan audience or a Ugandan audience. We worked with Africa-based publishers as well as um, North American-based publishers and in the UK. The ASA has endorsed this statement of principles on publishing. One of your colleagues here, Nwando Achebe, who is the chairs of our, our publications committee, helped broker this deal. We're going to kind of present it at this ASA meeting. And to get publishers committed, North America-based ones particularly, to be committed to circulating uh, monographs on the African continent by partnering with um, Africa-based publishers. So we're excited about um, that initiative. Uh, We haven't ironed out all the kinks. The ASA UK also um, is on board unanimously. And Aegis, which represents the most of the African Studies Associations in our our groups in in the European Union. I don't think they voted on it yet, but we've been in constant conversation uh, with them. So we're hoping to change it up. We're also um, in conversation with Codesria, and Codesria rightly is concerned 
that we also get Africa-based publications circulating in the in the global north in a meaningful way, including things that they publish. So um, it's a huge uh, undertaking, but we've got to start somewhere. And the ways in which the the different places where knowledge is produced and then doesn't circulate outside of those sites, and particularly in African studies, where you have you know this work that's being produced in North America, and the idea that that people, you know, in a country concerned, have never even seen the book, is outrageous, and it's unavailable in the bookstores. I mean, even in Ghana, where things circulate pretty widely, I'll go to the bookstore and the majority of monographs published in the last 10 years, the overwhelming majority, are not available in the bookstore because they would cost the equivalent of two weeks of an academic salary in that context. So, Well, it's very exciting to hear about these developments, and Michigan State University Press has also signed on. Yes, and that's so, right. And so, you know, we'll see how it all unfolds. But speaking of the circulation of knowledge and the politics of knowledge production. Uh, just uh, in a little while after our interview here, you'll be giving your lecture, Herskovitz Must Fall, that's a hashtag, a meditation on whiteness, African studies, and the unfinished business of 1968. This is part of the uh, annual MSU ASA presidential lecture series. Uh, obviously, the global significance of 1968 doesn't need to be explained, whether it's the Prague Spring, the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr., or Robert Kennedy, or the Mexico City Olympic protests, et cetera, et cetera. But those listeners not steeped in the history of African studies in the U.S. may not know that it was a very tumultuous year in our field as well. Can you tell us about African studies and the, quote, unfinished business of 1968? Right. Um, well, the African Studies Association was founded in 1957 by 30-plus people who met in New York City. With two exceptions, they were all white. Um, and the association was overwhelmingly white. And, it, you know, it was those of us who know about sort of Cold War politics know know that area studies sort of emerges at this time as a response to decolonization and, oh my gosh, there are whole parts of the world we don't know anything about. We better throw some money and figure it out. So that's where sort of African studies uh, was, was, was birthed um, out of that, that concern. By the time we get to 1968, I'm just going to skip over the, the first decade because you asked specifically about 68, there's real concern among the few uh, black members of the African Studies Association about what the association looks like, what's being prioritized, you know, cities are up in flames, students are demanding black studies programs across the country, and black members of the ASA are asking, where's African studies in this conversation? And basically the ASA was saying, well, that's not what we're about. So that was a huge problem. So in 1968 in Los Angeles, black members of the African Studies Association, African Americans, Africans, uh, joined together in what they were calling a black caucus and made certain demands of the ASA, which were not revolutionary demands. Uh, they were asking for more representation. They were asking for a conversation about um, the linkages between African and African-American studies and how the ASA might be at the table. That was 68. 
by the time of the next meeting, which was in 1969, that meeting was in Montreal. And by then, the ASA moved very slowly in response to those um, requests. And those requests became, in 1969, demands. Demands made by the African Heritage Studies Association, which formed out of the Black Caucus in, 19, um, in June of 69. So at that meeting, um, that meeting was disrupted. So my talk is about uh, that disruption. And basically what I consider to be um, the unfinished business, the demands still not met that were raised in 68, raised again in 69. And after that, uh, 69 and the ASA's failure to really address concerns uh, that were raised by black scholars, hundreds uh, left the organization, black and white both, in 1969 over the next couple of years. So that's what the the presentation uh, is about. Well, I think we need to get you to that presentation soon, so we're going to stop here. But thank you very much, Jean Allman, thank for you too. speaking with Africa Past and Present. <laughs> Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.